that with us tonight, so thankful for your presence, and especially those that are visiting with us. We're always encouraged by you and glad that you're able to be with us tonight as well. Those that are watching online, we're always encouraged by you, and, and thank you for being with us as well. Just a quick few notes. Uh, Mandy has asked us to pray for the Dozier and Sapp family. They're going through some troubled times. It's, uh, it's just a, uh, it's a hard situation. Also, uh, we found out that Kay Jessup, who uh, usually one of our members here, she's been in the hospital because of COVID. She really got a bad dose of that. And uh, she's, she's back home. She got out Thursday, but she's still a little bit under the weather. So keep her in your prayers as well. This particular sermon is going to be a two-part sermon. It's going to be tonight and next Sunday night as well. And this, this is something that's been on my mind for some time. I, I was encouraged by Eula Lytle and Jim that had given me a book that was written by V.E. Howard. And what is the Church of Christ? And the lot that I was reading in there was something that was encouraging to me, much like what Brother Leroy Brownlow wrote in, in uh, his book of what it means to be a member of the Lord's church. And so I want you to really take heed to the things that are going to be taught tonight and also next Sunday night. And of course, the following week, uh, Brother Alan Webster will be with us and we're looking forward to that. So don't forget about that. The scripture that was read just a few moments ago I think emphasizes the relationship that Jesus has with the church. The Bible says that Jesus loved the church and he gave himself for it. When we preach Christ crucified, we have to preach about the church because the two are inseparable. They're intertwined. You really can't separate the two at all for you see Jesus Christ loves the church. Not so much so that he bought it with his own blood there in Acts 20 and verse 28. Not only did he buy the church, but he built it. And so to talk about the church and the relationship that Jesus has with this great institution, we begin by saying that this is a tremendous privilege to be a member of the Lord's church that we read about in the Bible. To know that we can simply be New Testament Christians Nothing more and nothing less. That we can be a member of the, of the church that we read about in the Bible. Everything that we do, everything that we preach should be based on what the scriptures say. Peter said in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so as we talk about Jesus and the church and as we think about the preaching that took place in the first century, we need to understand that the early apostles those and those disciples, they preached about the church. You know, Philip, you might recall, in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, went down to the city of Samaria. And he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's what verse 12 says. The Bible says that, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were baptized, both men and women. And so we having said that, noticing that Philip preached Jesus, he preached about the church, we want to call attention to some things that are 
said in Scripture about the church. Number one, we first noticed that the church was built by Jesus. When we say that Jesus built the church, what we're really doing is emphasizing the fact that he is the founder of the church. The church that we read about in the New Testament, Jesus founded it. The Son of God. In Matthew 16 and verse 13 and following, you might recall that when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, Elias. Some said that Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said unto them, whom do ye say that I, the Son of Man, am? And it was Simon Peter who answered and said that thou art to Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Two things here. Number one, Jesus promised to build his church that belongs to him. Did you notice what he said there in verse 18? I will build my church. That is singular in nature, but possessive in nature as well. Singular from the vantage point that he just built one, possessive from the, from the vantage point in that it belongs to him and no one else. Now, when you look at what the Bible has to say in Ephesians 3, 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul tells us that the church that Jesus Christ built was founded by him. It's a result of God's eternal plan. The church was no accident, as many are saying today, but rather that God had planned, he purposed for this divine institution. Listen to what Paul said. Beginning in verse 9 of Ephesians 3, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world had been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the, here it is, the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church was a part of God's eternal redemptive plan. It was no accident. We go back and we look at some of the prophecies of old in the Old Testament, where Isaiah, for one, had been called the statesman prophet, and he began his prophecies about 750 years before Jesus ever came to this earth. And in Isaiah 2 and verse 2, Isaiah said, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. You see, that gives us insight of the fact that the church is viewed as this exalted institution that it would be comprised of all people, both Jew and Gentile. That was God's eternal plan. It was his eternal purpose. And then there's Daniel. Daniel, of course, in chapter 2, had interpreted a dream by the Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. 
in verses 31 through 35. And in his interpretation, Daniel foretold of four very important great world empires, if you will, beginning with that head of gold being the Babylonian Empire, all the way down to the Roman kings. And then he said in verse 44, and here it is. And in the days of these kings, he's talking about the Roman king. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to the people, to other people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. That kingdom that he's talking about is the church of our Lord. Daniel, not long ago, was saying that in the days of these kings, that is in the days of the Roman kings. And if you go back and you look at world history, you'll find that Nebuchadnezzar was the head king of Babylon, and that fell in about 539 B.C. to the Medo-Persians under Cyrus, the Persian king. God's people were allowed to leave captivity and return home and begin rebuilding the temple. And then the Medes and the Persians fell in about 330 B.C. to the Grecians. And the Grecians later gave way to the Romans. And of course, the Grecians, you have Alexander the Great. And then they fell to the Romans. And what Daniel was saying here, that in the days of these kings, the Roman kings, that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom is the church. Now it's interesting to me that in Matthew chapter 3, when John the baptizer, John the immerser, who was the forerunner to the Christ, and John had a mission of trying to point people in the right direction, to the direction of Jesus. And John said in John 3 and verse 30 that he must increase, I must decrease, He was talking about Jesus when he said he must increase. And John's ministry was to point people in the direction of the Messiah, the Christ. He was to prepare the hearts and the minds of people to receive the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when John the baptizer began his ministry, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right around the corner. It's soon to be. It is at hand hand Matthew 3 2 the kingdom that he was talking about is the very same kingdom that Daniel foretold centuries earlier it's the same kingdom that Isaiah had talked about in Isaiah chapter 2 many centuries earlier and then Jesus in Matthew 4 and verse 17 would begin his personal ministry here upon this earth at about the age of 30 And he too would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what you have here is God planning for the church. God prophesying of the church. And furthermore, you have God through John the baptizer and Jesus his son preaching about the church. That was soon to be. And then you have Jesus, the Son of God, promising to build the church, as he said in Matthew 16, 18. And when he asked this question, if Jesus promised to build the church, did he hold true to that promise? Well, the answer is a resounding yes. (laughs) No doubt. Of course he did. Isaiah, back in Isaiah 2 and verse 3, said that the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. 
When you look at the New Testament, you'll find that the church began in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in about A.D. 33. Somewhere along the time frame, the church is a result of God's eternal plan. The church was no accident. I can't emphasize that enough because a lot of people had the idea that the church was an afterthought, that it was an accident, that the kingdom has not been set up yet, but it was in the very mind of Almighty God. It was eternally purposed, and thus it was brought into existence on that day of Pentecost in about A.D. 33. So Jesus is the founder of the church, but also he is the foundation of the church. Did you know that everything rests on Jesus as that chief cornerstone? In Ephesians 2 and verse 20, Paul said, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You know, the chief cornerstone is, is the, that upon which that structure rests. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is that chief cornerstone and that the church rests on him. That chief cornerstone is what the rest of the building is able to be built on, to be, be sound and be structurally holding. That's Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, Paul said, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The psalmist had said in the long ago, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Psalm 127 and verse 1. And so we have Jesus building the church. Jesus promised to build the church. We have in looking at the scriptures, God's eternal plan. We have God's prophecies about the church. We are preaching about the church. We have the promise of the church. And ultimately, that church came into being on Pentecost Day some 2,000 years ago. Now, I said that Jesus built the church, but notice in the second place that the church was bought by Jesus. That ought to say something to us about the intimate relationship that Jesus had with the church. He purchased it. He bought it with his own blood. Again, I think about what Paul said in Ephesians 5 and verse 25 when he said, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over that which the Holy Spirit had gave them or had made them overseers to feed the church of God, which he had purchased with his own blood. Think about that for a a minute. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Here's a question. When he promised to build the church, and when he bought the church, how many churches did he build? And how many churches did he buy with his blood? Only one. How do I know that? Well, Paul said in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, in those Talking about the seven ones, he said there is one body and one spirit, body, church, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There is one body. What's that body? He's the head of the body, the church, Colossians 1.18. 
When Paul said, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That word beginning means an active cause. The source from which something came to life. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is preeminent in his relationship to the church. Why? Because he bought it. Have you ever bought something? Maybe you bought the car, paid cash for it, right? All of a sudden the bank says, wait wait a minute. Are you sure that's yours? It's mine. Because why? I bought it. I purchased it. I paid cash for it. I worked hard for that. I slayed for that. And now I'm going to enjoy it. You think that that's what Jesus was thinking? When he built the church and he bought it with his blood, it's his. It's nobody else. And anybody that claimed to be the one who founded the church is a false person. He's the one who started it. He built it. It originates with him. He's the one that bought it, brought it into being, and he did so on behalf of Almighty God, of which was in accordance the God's eternal plan. And so as we think about Jesus purchasing the church with his own blood, and since Jesus bought the church, number one, that would suggest that it belongs to him, right? That's right. The church belong, doesn't belong to me, nor does it belong to you or anybody else. No one has the right to build a church other than that what is recorded here in the scripture. You know, back in the book of Exodus, you might recall of when God instituted the Passover in chapter 12. And we find an interesting statement that was made there in Exodus 13 about Israel's relationship to God. And it was a type of relationship, if you will, that we enjoy in Christ and in the church today. And in Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast. Here it is. It is mine. That's what he said. It's mine. No one else's. What is the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament? You see, God is saying under that Mosaic dispensation, under that old covenant, that the firstborn belongs to him. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so in Hebrews 12 and verse 23, the writer said, To the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Now let me just pause there for just a moment and... What is the significance of the firstborn? Have you ever thought about that? Do, do you remember what God said in Exodus 13 verse 2 that the firstborn belongs to him? God said it, it is mine. And what God is saying about the New Testament believer that some, that's somebody who belongs to the body of Christ, the saved. He is saying they belong to me. It is mine. They are mine. In Hebrews 12, in verse 23, when he writes to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, there's that same word. He's saying, they are mine. They have been set apart for me. Why? Because we have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. 
We've been set apart from the world to Almighty God. We're a part of the community of the saved. We are the ecclesia, the called out. That is what it means to be a member of the Lord's church. We are called out ones. We belong to him. How are we afforded this special relationship? Well, Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see that the only way that a person can get into Christ is by being baptized into Jesus Christ. And when we are baptized into Jesus Christ, there are a number of benefits or blessings. Number one, we are delivered out of the power of darkness. That is the world. Colossians 1.13, who had delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. It's in that sphere that we enjoy redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, verse 14. And so when we are baptized into Christ, what happens? We're translated out of this sphere of darkness into the kingdom of light. Isn't that wonderful? We enjoy the benefits and the blessings of the blood of Jesus Christ. Why do we need why do we need the blood of Jesus Christ? Because without the blood, we can't be saved. You know, the Bible says unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins with his blood. That's Revelation 1.5. In Ephesians 1 and verse 7. In whom, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We're saved by the blood of Christ. And when we are baptized in that watery grave, we are buried with him by baptism into death. And where was it that Jesus shed his blood? In his death. We are placed into that body that is described as the saved. We go back to Ephesians 5 and verse 25 when he said, Husbands, Love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Jesus is the savior of the body. He's the head of the body, the church, Colossians 1.18. And so that means I've got to be a member of the church in order to go to heaven. That's right. That's what the Bible teaches. Think again about what that Hebrew writer said to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, he says. Hebrews 12, 23. If you're not among the firstborn, if you're not in the Lord's church, your name is not registered in heaven. You're not among the saved. You're not a part of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, Paul said, for by one spirit are we all baptized into Christ, into that one body. And when we are baptized into Jesus Christ, God places us into, into that divine body. We're a part of the kingdom of God, the community of, of the saved, a member of the church. We don't have to be voted into the church. Nobody has to sit down and decide whether or not we can be a member of the Lord's church. The Lord has added us to it. We belong to the body of Christ when we obey the gospel and so if you haven't been baptized into Christ, you're outside the blood of Christ. You're outside that sphere, the ark of spiritual safety, and your name is not written in heaven. We go back to Hebrews 12 and verse 23, where the Bible also speaks of God, the judge of all. You know, one day we're going to stand 
before that judge the judge of all the earth and we're going to give account of the deeds that are done in the body whether they're good or bad are are you ready to stand before the lord and to give an account of your life are you a member of the body of christ are you faithfully serving and living for him day in and day out if not you're not ready you're not ready that's what the bible teaches Now, since Jesus bought the church, number one, it belongs to him. Number two, it ought to bear his name. Now, think about that. The church belongs to Jesus. If it belongs to Jesus, and the Bible talks about how the church is the bride of Christ, in Revelation 19 and verse 7, the Bible tells us that the bride had made herself ready. Hmm. The bride. That's the picture of the church. The bride. One day Jesus will come again to receive his bride and we will talk about that a little bit later. But nonetheless, when a young man and a young woman get married, what typically transpires is that woman takes the name of the groom. When Teresa and I got married, she took my last name. Now when I married her, I married Wright because her last name was Wright, her maiden name. But I would say that when she married me, she married Wright. But she married into the Broyles family. Jesus bought the church. It belongs to him. And so it should bear his name. Here are some of the names that are used in the Bible to describe his people collectively. In the American Standard Version of 1901, the term church is found some 95 times. The Bible also speaks of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is found some 68 times in the New Testament. For example, in Mark 9 and verse 1, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of heaven come, or the kingdom of God come with power. He's talking about the church. That there were some of them that was going to be able to see if the kingdom hasn't come According to a lot of people, then we've got some 2,000-year-old apostles, because that's who he was talking about there in Mark 9, 1, verse 1, that are still living to wait to see the kingdom come with power, the kingdom of God. But we know that's not true. And then there's the expression, the kingdom of heaven. That expression is found some 32 times in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 13 and verse 44, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a treasure that's hidden in a field. And then we have the church of God found some 11 times in the American Standard Version of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, Paul wrote unto the church of God, which is at Corinth to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. And then there's that expression to the churches of Christ in Romans 16, 16. They can't get around that one. And in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33, the Bible speaks of the churches of the saints. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, we have a reference to the house of God, the church of the living God. The American Standard Version in Acts 20 and verse 28 is called the church of our Lord. Those are biblical names. If somebody were to ask you, what are you a member of? You could say, I'm a member of the church. I'm a member of the church of God. I'm a member of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. I'm a member of the church of Christ. 
I am a part of the churches of the saints. Those are biblical names and we have a right to use those names. I love the name church. Somebody says, well, but what church are you a part of? Well, I'm a part of the church. What church? The church of the Bible. Is there any other? You see, I have to question. Is there any other? There's only one. The Lord's church. And so when we talk about the church, we're talking about the church that's been revealed to us in the Bible. Now we could call ourselves the church, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the church of God, the church of the living God, the church of Christ. All of these are biblical names. But since Jesus bought the church, should it not just wear his name? Should it not exalt him? Should it not bring him glory? Here's some statements that I think are really helpful. As we think about the names that are used in the Bible to describe the church. Now, these are some statements that have been made in the past by religious leaders. One of the religious leaders was a member of the church, but the other three, they were not members of the Lord's church that we talk about in the Bible. What these men had to say was right on. They nailed it. I'm in no way endorsing them and their religion. But at one time, they said something that, that was encouraging. Too bad that they didn't stick to it and others as well. Listen to what Martin Luther said. And this has to do with what name that we shall call the church. Martin Luther said, I pray you to leave my name alone. Call not yourselves Lutherans, but Christians. Who is Luther? My doctrine is not mine. I have not been crucified for anyone. St. Paul would not that any should call themselves a Paul nor Peter, but of Christ. How then does it befit me a miserable bag of dust and ashes to give my name to the children of Christ? Cease, my dear friends, to cling to those party names and distinctions. Away with them all. Let us call ourselves only Christians after him from whom our doctrine comes. He was right. He nailed it. But of course he died and his followers decided we're going to name it after him. He had no control then, did he? But let me read for you what John Wesley had to say. And of course John and Charles Wesley, they are considered the ones from whom the Methodist church began. But here's what John Wesley said. I would to God that all party names and unscriptural phrases and, and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgotten. That we might all agree to sit down together as humble, loving disciples of the feet of the common master to hear his word, to imbibe his spirit, and to transcribe his life into our own. Do you think he got it right? You know he did. He knew what he was talking about. And so when we talk about a name and a name that the church should wear, we don't have to write to call the church after ourselves. You're, you're not going to the church of Charles. I didn't die for it. I wasn't sacrificed. And if I was, I had to be sinless before that happened. And we know that ain't true. Because I'm just like you. We have no more right to call the church after the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, or John the Baptizer, or anybody else, for that matter. 
We ought to wear the name of Jesus. And then there's Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a very interesting fellow, and he preached in the 1800s for the Metropolitan Baptist Church in London, or Baptist Tabernacle in London. And someone said that he preached to some 10,000 people per week. Now, this guy had enormous influence. Listen to what he said. I look forward with pleasure to the day when there will not be a Baptist living. I hope they will soon be gone. I hope the Baptist name will soon perish, but let Christ's name last forever. He got it right, didn't he? All he was saying is, let's call ourselves after a biblical name. Let's get away from these sectarian names. None of us are hyphenated Christians. We're not Baptist Christians, Methodist Christians, Presbyterian Christians, Catholic Christians. We're just simply Christians. Did you know that the Bible only makes Christians only and the only Christians? I want to write that one down. The Bible only makes Christians only and the only Christians. And then Alexander Campbell. The reason I want to read what Alexander Campbell has written is because there are a lot of people that have the idea that he's the one that started the Church of Christ. I have news for them. Listen, and please listen very carefully. If Alexander Campbell originated, started, purchased, bought the Church of Christ, I'm in the wrong church. If he started it in any way, I'm in the wrong church. I promise you that if he started this church, I for one would not be a member. I do not want to be a member of any church that any person has started but Jesus. I want to be a member of the church that we read about in the New Testament. That's what we're calling on people to do. Let's get back to the New Testament. Let's simply call Bible, uh, New Testament things by New Testament names. Let's do Bible things in Bible ways. Remember what Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracle, the commandments of God. 1 Peter 4.11 I have through the years been accused of being called a Campbellite. I'm not a Campbellite. And I take offense to anybody calling me a Campbellite. My life is not patterned after Alexander Campbell in no way. In fact, he didn't get it right all the time. Nor am I a member of the church that Alexander Campbell started. I'm a member of the church that Jesus bought and built. I'm a member of the Lord's church that I read about in the New Testament. I'm not a member of any other church. And when I talk about the church of Christ, I'm not saying to people in the world, our church, our denomination is better than your denomination. You know why? Because the Lord's church is not a denomination. It's pre-denominational. It was in existence long before the denominations came. Sometimes we use the term church of Christ in a denominational way. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I'm a church of Christ. I'm not a church of Christ. Now, I'm a member of the church of Christ. I'm a member of the Lord's church. I'm a member of the church of God, the church of the Lord, the church of the saints, the church of the firstborn. I'm a member of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but I'm not a church of Christ. 
Collectively, we are the church of Christ. Collectively, we are the church of the Lord. Collectively, we are the church of God. Individually, we are believers, Acts 5.14. We are disciples, Acts 9.1. We are followers of the way, Acts 9 and verse 2. We are Christians, Acts 11 and verse 26. We are saints, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. If someone were to ask you, what are you? Well, you could say, I'm a disciple of Christ. A disciple of Christ. I'm a believer. I'm a saint. You can say that you are a brother in Christ, Colossians 1, 2. But you're not a church of Christ. Listen to what Alexander Campbell said. He said, but alas, the enemies have blasphemed the blessed gospel by pasting our sinful names upon it to bring it into disrepute. And really what he's saying is, and what he's writing about had to do with those who were calling themselves Campbellites or Stonites. He said, I'm unworthy for anyone to be calling themselves after me. Why? Because I didn't die for the church and I did not build the church. And then also I want to read for you something that I think carries a lot of weight. And that's by Batsel Barrett Baxter, who's been dead now for over 40 years. But I think he was one of the greatest preachers in the 20th century, a, a great, great preacher, a great communicator of the gospel. But listen to what he said in a book that's entitled The, Fla the Family of God. On page 24, he said, The substitution of the names of men for the name of our Lord in connection with the church is just another one of the many steps which men have taken in getting away from the emphasis in which the New Testament places upon Christ as the center of our religion. What we need in doctrine and worship and in every phase of our Christian activities is to be returned to the centrality of Christ. We need to forget the creeds and the counsels of men. We need to forget the subtractions and the additions that men have made to the religion of Christ. We need to remember Christ and Him alone. This also holds true in matter of names, as Paul wrote, in whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Colossians 3, 17. Is it defensible that the name of some ordinance of the church should be exalted as the name of the church? Is it proper that the name of some reformer, some church leader, should be exalted as the name of the church? Is it appropriate that some phase of the government of the church should become the church name? Is it logical that anything but the name of Christ should be the name that his disciples wear? Is it reasonable that anything but his name should be used as designation of his church? And he says, may our practice come to conform to the very meaningful words of the great Christian hymn, All Hell, the Power of Jesus' Name. I want to close tonight by saying this, that I am a member of the church that I read about in the scriptures. We have a great message to share with the lost and dying world. There are a lot of folks in our world today that don't know anything about New Testament Christianity. And in fact, the, the only way they know anything about New Testament Christianity probably is what they see in your life. I want you to think about that. They have been taught this doctrine, that doctrine, any other old doctrine. And what we as members of the body of Christ 
have to share to the lost and dying world is that, again, the Bible only makes Christians only and the only Christian. Why not just be a Christian? Why not just go back to the first century and just be a member of the Lord's church that we read about in the Bible? If we do what they did in the first century, we will become what they were, which is New Testament Christians only. Anything less is not acceptable. Anything more is not acceptable. I always like to use this illustration. You go back to the early 1900s, and we're talking about 1900 to 1905 or so, maybe a little bit later as well. If you were to buy a car, guess what? There was only one. Ford. F-O-R-D. You could have any color you wanted as long as it was black. But there was only one. You couldn't say, well, I've decided to go buy a car when I'm hoping to be able to get something other than a Ford. Uh, you wouldn't even thought that because there was only one at that time. Others started breaking off from Henry Ford, started to go their own way. We can do it better. Isn't that how the... Catholic Church began. Well, we got an idea that we can do things better. We don't like the way they're doing that in the Lord's Church. We can do it better. Well, they made it worse because all the denominations resulted because of what they did. If you were to look up on Google or Bing the word church or churches near you, you could read of a number of different churches in existence in this community, in Tampa, in Clearwater, St. Pete, in the state of Florida. You can look around the globe. There are a lot of churches, but really the question is, can we find the church in the search engines on our phones, tablets, or computers, the church that we read about in the Bible? Are you a member of the church that you read about in the Bible? That on Pentecost Day, some 2,000 years ago, of where many repented of their sins and were baptized into Christ, saved, of where God added them to the church, Acts 2.47, they became members of the blood-bought body of Christ. And to those who live faithfully, the promise is the crown of eternal life. That same promise, that same invitation that was given to them is given to us today. And it's up to us to respond to it. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized. Mark 16, 16. Peter, to all those Jews that came from all those different nations in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, from Isaiah 2, Daniel 2, said, after they asked that question, men and brethren, what shall we do? We've crucified the Messiah. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Some 3,000 souls, Acts 2.41, believed and were baptized. Acts 2.47, God added to the church daily such as should be saved. You can do that tonight. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Are you willing to change your ways? That's repentance. Are you willing to make that good confession that Jesus is the Christ? And are you willing to go down into the waters of baptism and have those sins washed away?
to become a child of God. We hope that you'll do that tonight. Maybe you're here already a child of God, but you wandered off back into the world. You've fallen from grace. You lost your faith. Come back. Repent of those sins. Pray that God will forgive you. We'll pray with you and for you as well. As we sing this song of encouragement, number 370, I hope that you'll pay attention to the words of that song, that maybe it will convict you to be converted, to be able to be added to the Lord's church, the one and only church of our Lord. Together we stand.